It's episode 65 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky, and joining me today are J.P. Breen and Ryan Topsback. Yep. How's it feel to be back? Excellent. You've had a busy couple weekends. I've uh, Yeah, this is the first weekend in a month where I haven't been insanely running all over the place, so it's kind of nice. How long did it take you to wash all the dirty hippie filth off from the the panic and, and fish concerts? It was it was several showers. It wasn't just one. That that kind of grime doesn't come off in just one shot. You gotta you gotta work at that. You gotta scrub. Did you do most of the borrowing, or were you lending stuff to all the wooks that were in the lot? <laughs> I, <laughs> I. I, I came out of the whole thing doing okay. You came uh, out ahead? And actually, because of uh, my preseason wager on the uh, the Red Sox to win the World Series, I got the Red Sox at 11-1 to before the season started. So the Red Sox winning that World Series last weekend made the whole weekend very profitable. Profitable or you broke even? Oh, no, no, no. I came out significantly ahead on the whole thing. Oh, and right. I also I did also have a ticket on the Brewers to win at 25-1, to but... That didn't quite happen. Yeah, JP, who'd you put money on to begin the season? I didn't put money on anyone because you have to have money in order to put it on it. <laughs> You're not a de- degenerate gambler as, as well? The, the top boys, they like to put their money down on stuff. Well, see, I think one of the big things is that I'm gambling with my you know life and career. Uh, <laughs> and like taking on debt to hopefully get something that it, there aren't many jobs available in. Uh, so I gamble uh, apparently with just like the really big stuff and not necessarily sports. What a gambler. That is a, that is a big gamble. We, we all give you credit for that one. So help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's tailgate on Apple podcasts and Spotify. We want listener questions. So follow Milwaukee's tailgate on Twitter at MKE tailgate, email questions to Milwaukee's dot tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. Yeah. Y'all brought the questions this week. Yeah. And last week too, which I would, I was jealous. I wanted to answer some of those. I was sitting in my car driving back from Chicago going, ah, I want to say something. Ryan was actually having a conversation with the podcast he wasn't on. I was, uh, yeah, you can, you can confirm with Justin, who is dr- driving co-pilot, that I was yelling at you. <laughs> like, no, Steve, no. <laughs> yelling at me? No, you said something wrong. I can't remember what it was. Sure, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, don't forget, you can follow the three of us on Twitter, and that's in our Milwaukee Steelgate Twitter bio. And finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash Tailgate. Our ball and glove level patrons will receive the monthly minor league extra podcast, which should start picking up again. We kind of hit a little bit of a fallow period as far as what you guys had to talk about, but we had the AFL. You guys can do some rankings in the the. Uh, off season so yeah the november episode will be coming up i don't believe this week this is a tough week for me but i think we'll be next week but like i said there's more to talk about there oh yeah that as well so oh yeah uh look forward to that um milwaukee's tailgate is sponsored by carbon four brewing from dragon flute to block party to fantasy factory ipa k4 specializes in english style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades out now is the night call smoked porter and downton apple apple ale also fantasy factory ipa is in cans so go out and look for that and don't forget that we have a deal exclusively through milwaukee's tailgate use the promo code mke tailgate in the carbon four web store and receive 20 percent off your order visit the brewery on kinsman boulevard or find their beer at your local retailer as always check out carbonfour.com for more information carbon four beer brilliance Milwaukee's Tailgate is also sponsored in part by Sound Devices, a premier manufacturer of audio production gear, and they're located right here in Wisconsin. Sound Devices gear is used worldwide and is found on the set of Oscar-winning films and popular TV shows. 
And if you're looking to create a professional sounding podcast, check out the MixPre 3 and MixPre 6. For more, for more information, visit sounddevices.com. Hey, the Brewers had kind of an exciting week this week, I guess. Weirdly, yeah. It was it was more exciting than we expected um, since like the coaching staff just decided to leave. Yeah. Most of it. I mean, it does feel that way. They just said, hey, we're out of here. I mean, the two most important members of the coaching staff, I think. I, I've always, you know, bench coaches are important, but I feel like they're, you know, assistant head coaches, so not really. It's the hitting coach and the pitching coach are the two most important non-manager people. JP, are they the most important non-manager people? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) He's already perfected his, I cannot be bothered to discuss this look. Well, you're the one who cares. We were talking about this before we started recording. You're the one who cares. JP doesn't care, and I just assume that if you're the the hitting coach or pitching coach, you're literally there just to be fired. (laughs) Yeah, that is, is, yes. You know, if you're going well, everybody says you're great, but the moment anything goes wrong, like, you're there to be fired if you're either of those positions. Well, and we saw that with Coles this year. There were a number of people who in conversations I had with other Brewer fans were like, why haven't we fired the hitting coach? And I'm like, oh, really? We're <laughs> kind of took me by surprise at first, the first time I heard it. They all want the hitting coach fired. Hitting coach is number one to get fired. Mm, and- pitching coach. Anytime, anytime pitchers have like a bad couple weeks, it's fire the pitching coach. That'll make it all better. No, nah, because I think there's more of an immediacy to a, a team that's not hitting well when you see three up, three down, three up, three down, three up, three down. So... I don't know. That's my attitude there. But first off, uh, was it Lee Tunnel? He was let go. He was the one that was actually like let go by the organization. And this is always one. Uh, do you know, JP, what uh, bullpen coaches actually do? My impression was always they're the assistant pitching coach. They're there to like, you know, give additional insight and additional whatever and like stand there with a clipboard and track how many pitches, how often guys get up, you know, all that stuff. Do they even answer the bullpen phone or do they have like somebody else do that? I think that's Marcus Hanel's job. I don't know. Yeah. So what do they do? Yeah. A lot of it is to be able to offer another voice in terms of pitching mechanics, in terms of what the, the pitching coach does, but it's also to handle bullpen sessions. It's also to make sure, as you said, to be able to track how many times people are up to be able to coordinate, you know, who's pitching on, on their, um, you know, their regular rest days and things like that in terms of starting pitching, being able to have their bullpens and things like that. So it's a lot of, I, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's, it's not so much a coach as it is a coordinator. Sure. That, yeah, I mean, it seems like more of an administrative job, perhaps, than maybe some of the other coaching positions, but... Are they more important or less important than the bullpen catcher? (laughs) Because I know the bullpen catcher puts stuff on and, like, catches the ball and then throws it back to the pitcher as he's warming up. So, like, there's activity there. Right, and they also, you know, run, like, youth camps and stuff like that. Yeah. (laughs) So... Well, yeah, he's gone, so we'll see what happens there, and there isn't a lot of detail about reasons for it. No, I think he'll probably be, they'll probably hire after they hire a new pitching coach, right? Like, that would be the, because they still haven't done that. As of this recording, we have no new pitching coach. No, no, not yet. So, okay, Darnell Coles, at the same time that the tunnel news came out, he elected to leave for the Arizona, Arizona Diamondbacks to become their hitting coach. And his was a little bit different because he was he left his job and then two days later got the Arizona Diamondbacks job. Now, he may have already had that lined up, 
that may not have been a him just leaving for whatever, but there was at least some time there where we didn't know that he just had another job lined up. So, but he had decided to leave. He had decided to leave. Yes, he, that was on his own accord. He didn't get pushed out the door, as far as we know. Yeah. So Andy Haney was hired as the new hitting coach. So I know that lit up the uh, Milwaukee media. Everybody's very excited about that news. You laugh well, I, because I, no one's excited. Okay. But I think one of the the key things to recognize about the Coles and Haney move is that uh, the Brewers didn't really have time. Like if they finally found out that Coles was leaving basically when he left and went to the Diamondbacks, they didn't have time to set up interviews and different things for their own hitting coach search. And so it seems to me that this was probably in the works for a while, that they pretty much knew who they wanted, uh, that Coles probably informed them that that he was going to be leaving because he had an opportunity to go with the D-backs and then the Brewers had their own search to be able to to hire somebody that was going to be able to replace him just because it's unlike you know the Johnson news which seemed to to take some people by surprise um I don't think it took the organization by surprise it seems like they actually have been negotiating to try to keep him uh for a while um and it was an opportunity for him to go, and it was not something that they were necessarily planning on. Cole, it seems like they were ready to go. It, it's a lot like what we saw with Yelich and and uh, Kane in the last offseason, that once one thing fell, the other thing happened so quickly that they had to have had these things already working in tandem. So it wasn't surprising to me that uh, they had somebody already ready to go once it the news wasn't that Cole's Coles was fired it was that he had decided to leave and that he already had a job lined up which takes a while to set up in the first place so the brewers were already in in a pretty good spot for that do well, you get part the of the sense- reason all this would have come down at the same time though as well as everybody waits for the end of the world series before they start announcing moves well i think contracts end at that point yeah. i think that's like your contract i think for coaches like that runs to the end of the world series yes. and then yeah but that's why all of a sudden you kind of hit that date and then just and there was stuff all happens, kinds of, and yeah. there's, there's a lot of fallout. And if we were following more closely around the league, we'd probably see all the teams that were going through something similar. Well, you think Stearns and Council have a list of people the way Barry Alvarez keeps his list? He's always got a list of who is his people he wants to hire for his you know various coaching positions at uh, at UW. Do I? Yes, I think they probably do. That they keep it sort of up to date. So then in that case, you would think that they have some people lined up for the pitching coach yep. search. Okay. So anyways, Haney, he was uh, the Cubs assistant hitting coach. Um, and I know the Cubs weren't thrilled with their hitting this year. Didn't they fire their hitting coach? They did. And they hired a new one. Yeah. So he comes from there. We'll see what happens. And you said, Ryan, that he uh, was a minor league hitting coordinator for the Marlins when Kristen Yelich was there? At some point, yeah. That's so. what I, I gleaned from some of the reports that were out there. So, I mean, I imagine that this is they're going to get somebody who's process-oriented again because that was what I liked about Coles. Not anything results-wise. He seemed to do fine with the results. But, like, when I read some profiles of him, he was a very, very process-oriented guy to the point where he wasn't even really paying attention to necessarily like what the final outcome was. He was looking at, are we getting the the right inputs into guys taking at bats the right way, and like, are we seeing hard contact being made to all fields? That sort of stuff. That was really his focus more so than you know, did a ball bleed through up the middle or whatever, because he knows you can't control that. So, I would assume. Haney is going to be of the same. I mean, are there a lot of coaches that are telling guys to hit bleeders up the middles up the middle nowadays? Yeah. Nowadays, probably not. 
Probably not. And there was a time when it was, oh, yeah. hey, hit the ball on the ground. Oh, yeah. I remember a profile story once about the Minnesota Twins, and they were like, so their hitting coach would stand there during batting practice and yell out, runner on third, less than two outs. And like the hitter was supposed to go, okay, now I got to adjust my, my thought process and like do that. And like, I mean, this was in the like the 2000s. So, but I, yeah. In the I, year I, 2000? I, yeah. I don't think that that actually happens anymore. Yeah. I don't think that that's, you know, what's going on. Okay, so uh, the bigger news was Derek Johnson leaving later in the week after the other coaching moves. That one seemed to be a little bit more of a surprise. Uh, The beat writers seemed to be caught off guard. Yeah, he left for the Reds. So, yeah, the Brewers currently don't have a pitching coach. And I think everybody was a little shocked because they were happy with what they saw from Derek Johnson. Yeah, why don't you go ahead first, JP? Because I know you have a different take on this than I do. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it took the beat writers off guard, but Stearns already came out and said that they had been working extensively to try to extend uh, Derek Johnson. Um, and I think a lot of people have somehow taken that to be like they suddenly decided that they wanted to keep him in the last two weeks rather than trying over the course of the entire year to try to extend him. I don't think there's any sense that we know that uh, whatsoever, but I'm not surprised that the Brewers did better than expected. And a lot of the story was about how their pitching staff overperformed. And some people came with huge checkbooks and wanted to be able to hire him away. We've already seen that the giants came for David Stearns. Um, and that, that Mark Atanasio already turned down that, that offer to be able to, to go and interview him for a potential job with the, with the giants. And this is the way it goes. Anytime that you have a small market team that is surprisingly successful, everybody starts coming for the coaching staff. Uh, so no, I'm not surprised about it. Um, and I also think that it's not a measure. I, I do not think this is a situation in which the Brewers did not want to keep Derek Johnson, nor did, nor is it a situation in which they didn't try hard enough. I mean, they at some point didn't end up going and offering as much money. That was that was all the reports. Sure. That was all the reports that were out there that they they decided not to offer as much money as what the Reds did. I don't know if that's in terms of length and years or length and dollar amount, but I don't know. Does does the length of a contract for a pitching coach matter? I mean, the way again, those bench coaches all get let go so quickly. They're not right. making that much money that an organization can't let any of them go just when they want to. No, they they get hired. They're they're hired to be fired. Yes, I mean that's the, less true than it used to be, though. I think. Uh, I think I there's know. more autonomy given to, especially pitching coaches now, and like they really do like run a lot of the, you know, pitching side of things for organizations. Sure. I know JP, you had a your take when we were first talking about this. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, you were talking but about. <laughs> well, no, I'm just gonna. I'm going to refresh him what he was saying, and he can go on that direction. Um, it was that that the Brewers' pitching success you felt was not just due to Johnson, but also a product of the entire organization. That this is that he was the implementer of a plan. Yeah, I mean, I, d- I don't think anybody can look at the Brewers organization and think that they didn't have an organizational shift that they wanted to make and a plan that they wanted to be able to implement in their pitching staff. Derek Johnson was somebody to communicate it. Um, Derek Johnson was not the sole person that came in and decided that maybe we needed to start throwing fastballs up in the zone. Uh, or it's not like he was the first person to be able to think that maybe we needed to be able to use uh, 
relievers multiple innings and be a little bit more flexible in that usage. If if it came from any coach, I would say that it came from Craig Council, though I assume that it came from baseball ops and a more holistic, holistic approach. Um, the Derek Johnson narrative, I understand that he seems to have been somebody who could really disseminate information well uh, to be able to give a lot of data to somebody in which they could they could process it in a, in a way that was beneficial. Um, but I also think that much like we've seen with a lot of coaches, uh, a, a lot of pitching coaches in particular, there are there is a hero narrative that gets created very, very quickly by ignoring all of the negative aspects that don't fit. So Derek Johnson is somehow somebody that came in and revolutionized the pitching staff, but yet Chase Anderson's regression is not something that's put on him. There's not something in which uh, Corey Knable, you know, struggled for a good portion of the year. And that somehow is not attributed to him. He wasn't able to take a lot of the, you know, guys like Jacob Barnes, who seems to have gone backwards. Um, it doesn't take into consideration the fact that Zach Davies was pitching to the point that, you know, it could have been an elbow or a shoulder injury, but it also was pitching himself to AAA. Um, Junior Guerra is somebody that was able to pitch himself out of the rotation. So there's a lot of people that didn't necessarily uh, progress. There were people that progressed last year and then regressed this year, and they don't necessarily fit in. I think that a lot of this Derek Johnson was the reason why the pitching staff was how it is, is, is extremely overblown. And I do not think that he is the only person that can communicate data and analytics to a pitching staff in a way that is easy to digest. Yeah, I mean, I always think back to like Mike Maddox during his tenure became like the pitching coach because I think he he got some really good seasons out of, you know, like Chris Capuano and guys like that. Doug Davis. Doug Davis, um, you know, and I think he's on his third organization since leaving uh, Milwaukee now it's been t it's been 10 years and he just joined his third organization he's with the Rangers he was with uh the Nationals yeah and then he went to the Cardinals yeah but well, I mean but that's not I don't think he was ever like run out of town from those jobs no, he no, like no, no, went no. and took a different job but I'm just saying it's a pitching coach and they can they can be good but that doesn't mean they're just going to like set up camp somewhere and then coach for 20 years and you have the greatest rotation ever most don't well and it's a situation in which um the flavor of the month that most recently was the pitching coach uh, that everybody wanted was Chris Bosio, and he doesn't even have a job anymore. Well, that's there's some other stuff going on there because he, there he there's some other stuff going on, and then the pitch and the the Cubs pitching was bad. Well, no, he got well, he, yeah, he got let go from he the got Cubs let go and from he was the, in Detroit from the Tigers. He got fired from the Tigers because of the. Uh, um, I know that. I know yeah. that, but there's a situation <laughs> yeah, in which when he was with the Cubs and everybody was saying that mm -hmm. Chris Bosio was doing so many great things with the Cubs, the Cubs pitching staff wasn't that good. And even when he was left for the Tigers, they weren't that good prior to him leaving. No, and he built that reputation largely on like Jake Arrieta turning into a, a super stud, uh, you know, Kyle Hendricks being, you know, way out pitching his what people would consider his stuff, that sort of stuff. I guess my thing with the pitching coach situation is. I, I agree with what you're saying. I don't I don't disagree with any of that, but it still to me strikes me as a negative that they let it get to this point that it that this happened this way. And my real issue is that you had yes, you may be able to find somebody who is just as good if not better than him. But what you had was a guy who was clearly very very good at doing implementing and communicating whatever this 
pitching philosophy the organization had. He was having success with it. And I think that it would be hard for me. You, I don't want to take what's behind the unknown door when I have that situation, if I have the choice. So I'm disappointed that they didn't just pony up the extra hundred, couple hundred thousand dollars or whatever it was to keep him when you have that, you have something that you know works. You have something that you know is functional. And it sounds like they really did want to keep him and they did try, but apparently he wasn't, they didn't value him that highly. So they didn't end up overbidding what the Reds did and they well, let him hold go. Hold on. Okay. So, JP, you had mentioned that they had been trying to work out a deal with Johnson before the end of the season, correct? Well, that's by all accounts. And it's also, I think it's an extreme reduction to say that. Uh, the only reason he left was because they weren't able to agree to financial terms. There are other pe- there are other reasons people leave jobs. But it's from the reports that were out there. It sounded like it was m- it was money that this came down to. It, this no, wasn't about no. him having like creative differences or something. This was no. The only thing that was reported was that the Brewers tried to negotiate with him, and then they ended up not being able to come to an agreement. That's the only thing that's been reported on the negotiations whatsoever. And it could have been. You know, he's from kind of uh, more southern Illinois. Maybe his maybe he's got family. I don't there are a lot of things. Maybe he saw I even put in the we've talked about how the fact that the Brewers probably have a rotation that is going to regress next year. Uh, And we've talked about the fact that maybe Johnson wanted to be able to take his big payday now because he was worried about next year. His reputation might go down because he knew that they were out pitching themselves and a little bit in terms of luck. I don't know. Those are a lot of uh, potential negatives. I don't want to sound cynical in the situation, but we automatically think that a number one, the only thing that matters with any kind of uh, negotiations in terms of contract is money. And we've seen that that's not necessarily the case, especially with coaching staffs, because the the monetary difference isn't usually that big. Um, But then there's also a situation in which we assume that because it came out after the year and it said that they had extensive negotiations to try to keep Derek Johnson, that somehow those negotiations didn't start until the Brewers had an opportunity or that the Brewers had to react to the, the Reds coming forward. I don't think that I think that's a pretty big assumption as well. Yeah, I mean, so, there's been speculation because he his job previous to the Brewers was the Cubs. But before that, he was the uh, coach at Vanderbilt. And apparently his family still lives in Nashville. And yeah, Cincinnati's a lot closer to Nashville than Milwaukee is so maybe that had something to do with it I I mean I'm just gonna assume he enjoys that god-awful chili with pasta or whatever it is in it right isn't that line yeah isn't that what what they're known for down there they have their their terrible chili right they put they put chocolate in their chili which is just an abomination in in God's world that's terrible (laughs) yeah so okay hey do we want to do our postseason awards don't jump at it I mean, we don't want to get people too excited about this. Are the you ready? Awards? Sure. Are, are I'm, postseason I'm, I'm awards? Ready. Are you ready? I've, I have done extensive research on this. Well, does no, it, I does was, it really I was, was going to give Ryan an Do you have like somebody that you're looking for for a pitching coach or like something that you want to see in a pitching coach? Is that like, or you're just more concerned about the fact that now because they lost Eric Johnson, there is an unknown and therefore a chance that things go down like there is a risk inherent in an unknown quantity yes this is this is you're trading a known what everybody seems to think is a good quantity it it seems to me is a good quantity a known good for a a possible a possible flop and so you're introducing uncertainty into it that didn't seem necessary but didn't seem like they needed to do that when there is uh an organizational philosophy for the pitching uh 
for how pitching is used, how pitching is targeted via free agency in the trade market, all of this. And Craig Council seems to be somebody that really is kind of determining who is used when. How much influence is bringing in another pitching coach uh, and or another way of saying it is if you assume that all of this is an organizational philosophy, then wouldn't we expect any pitching coach to come in to be able to uh, align with the pitching philosophy that they want to be able to implement as an organization? I have every confidence that they're going to go through a good process to hire somebody that they feel is a good fit to replace them and that they're going to get somebody that they want to that that they think can handle and, and do the job. I have the utmost confidence that they are going to do a go through a good process. Whether or not that's going to produce great results, we have to wait and see because we just don't know if it's one thing for a person to come in and say, this is what my philosophy is. Oh yeah, I totally agree with this when you're trying to get a job. It's another thing when the bullets are flying, when things are really going, you know, potentially south or you have, you have, you know, complications that are going to arise. Will they continue to work and do the things that you want them to do, or are you going to potentially run into conflicts? Didn't seem to happen with Johnson. Will it happen with a new person? You hope not, but there's just this added uncertainty that you have these potential unknowns. And why do that when you have a guy who, by all accounts, seems to have been good? It just seems unnecessary. Sure, but part of it, again, is there are two sides to like wanting something to continue right so it's when saying like why didn't the brewers do this like there is somebody else that has to agree that they like want to continue that um but is this the first time that you've ever like been kind of uh not super process oriented wait what so you said that you were confident that the process was going to be great that you were really and you've always been like process is the most important thing and now you're worried that like you know the results might not follow through even though the process is going to be good right because the results don't always follow the process so you you can have a good process and you can still end up with a bad result so, so you you trust the process <laughs> so i do but, trust the process but so I do. One could also say that if the process was good with Derek Johnson, the results might not necessarily have been the same way if results don't follow process. No, but you have less uncertainty there because you've seen it work in action for three seasons with Derek Johnson. So you know that he has been through the ups and downs and that there doesn't seem to have been much that that rattled and threw him off of what the, the organization was doing. So you, I think, can make some pretty reasonable assumptions about the fact that Things were generally going well there. Okay, you done? Hey, I, I was going to let one this. Who, I, I was going to let this. I was going to let this drop, and then JP had to ask one more question about the process there. And I just oh. want to note: Hey, you were the one who said you didn't want to talk about pitching coaches. You kept well, that conversation alive. I'm just suggesting that uh, this was much more fun for me to pick on. It is than, uh, than other things because Ryan's been so big on process for so many years. And like every single time that we talk about process, he's always like, make sure that the process is good. Uh, don't worry about the results. And even just with the the hitting coach, he says this is good. Don't worry about the results on the field. And then suddenly we went and flipped the opposite way. And I thought that that was that uh, is not that a was flip the opposite way. That is not a flip. Okay, you two done? Are you, <laughs> are you done? I, sure. I'm I'm suggesting that Ryan is a flip flopper, and on Tuesday, make sure that you vote for uh, JP. Um, yeah, 
this and this uh this political advertisement has been sponsored by has been endorsed by uh jp Breen. thank you you, uh, <laughs> he, you can't see him right now but he's sitting there waving a pair of flip-flops in front of the the mic or in front of the camera yeah sure so okay postseason awards we're gonna do most improved player rookie of the year our, our cy young for the brewers and then our team mvp so uh ryan do you want to start off with the most improved player this season it's got to be christian yelich i mean granted he wasn't on the team the year before but he went from being a good solid major league player to being you know league mvp one of the best hitters in baseball especially in the second half so Mm -hmm. okay jp who do you have for most improved player this season well i'm just going to say that uh christian yelich being a five-win player is not like a good solid player that's like an all-star level level player but he had not been a consistent five-win player well yes he had been for two years and this is his third year in a row he's been at least a five-win player um but i am going to say uh wade miley um i think that there is a good shout for jesus aguilar but uh wade miley uh had never had a hadn't had an era below four since uh 2013 with the diamondbacks and last year with the orioles had a five six era and then was not only you know, and, and yes, he outpitches peripheral some, like we know that, but he also was able to change and throw his cutter to the point that he became the guy that we were relying on in the postseason. And whether or not you think that that was smoke and mirrors um, is kind of beside the point. Like that's it was such a running joke for a long time that we were like, do you really want to trust Wade Miley in the postseason? And the fact that that actually became something that a we were comfortable with. Uh, and B actually was something that the entire organization was like, he is one of the two starters that we want to rely on in the postseason was uh, kind of remarkable. Yeah. And I think my pick would have been Aguilar to begin with. I mean, yes, Yelich obviously made a big step forward, but Aguilar, as we discussed in the past, was struggling to make the roster out of spring training. So the fact that he was able to, you know, put up an all-star season this year, I think says a lot. Um, okay. Uh, rookie of the year this year, JP, who do you have as the rookie of the year for the Brewers? Well, I'm just going to say that I, I actually, the reason I didn't go with Aguilar because I did mention him was the fact that he had a 760 OPS in the second half. Sure. Um, did well, you realize like, he Christian, didn't... Christian Yelich wasn't Barry Bonds in the first half. I mean, so no, he was still quite good. A yeah. 760 OPS from first baseman is borderline, but you know what? If he would have put up a 760 OPS, just anyways it would have been kind of the borderline player we would have expected or hoped for yeah yeah yeah. no i'm not saying i i legitimately said he was my other choice for most improved i'm just saying that uh are a lot of things but for uh you were letting you were letting the most recent results recency bias affect your pick Ooh, it is salty today i'm just saying salty was but was Wade Miley bad to begin? Well, he wasn't pitching for the first couple months. That's because he was hurt. That's well, disingenuous. Hey, being uh, out there and actually playing does matter. Well, as Nick Franklin would tell you. Um, <laughs> okay, that's not fair. Nick Franklin was hurt the vast majority of the year. Um, so rookie, rookie of, the of the year, does Josh Hader count? No. Okay, that that was a question I had. Then I would say Corbin Burns was my rookie of the year. Um, I was on the wrong page. I was going to keep talking. You have about pages. Was, you have pages written down for this. I think I, everybody else is just picking a guy because I'd pick Burns as well. And I think part of that is it'd be between Burns and Peralta. I think, but I think Burns. Yeah. 
Burns, I think what he was able to contribute late in the season. Plus, I think it, it, we're kind of picking pedigree with Burns as well. Yeah, well, and and I think that the again Burns was somebody that down the stretch had cemented himself as a key a key contributor. Where yes, Freddie Peralta did pitch in the postseason, and yeah, he actually was able to carry the rotation when they were thin in the middle of the year. But um, Burns was somebody that again next year we're saying not only is he potentially going to move to the rotation but he's somebody that we're going to rely upon for the course of the year where freddie peralta we've talked about is he going to start the year in triple a um so for me yeah i agree with you i think i think burns is probably so ryan did you find the right page did you find the correct page i was going to point out aguilar did not have an ops in any month under 770 in any one month so he was actually more consistent i think than people realized he and he had a big he had an OPS of well over 800 in August as well. He had, you know, he had that very cold. That's an impressive head. rookie performance from Jesus. Aguilar. No, it is not. Okay. I'm I'm to be contrarian here. I'm going to make the argument for Freddie Peralta on this one. And yeah, Burns is probably the better long term answer here. But what Peralta did in terms of coming up as a 21 year old and being a stabilizing force was a huge, I guess, sort of out of nowhere thing. I I didn't think Freddie Peralta was anywhere near pitching in the major leagues this season. And the fact that he was able to come in, keep his head above water and give them really solid innings when they needed them. It was, it was tremendous. And like one of the, the defining, I don't know, games of the season, if you're looking at it, you know, early in the season. Obviously, people will remember down the stretch a lot more because it's, you know, there were a lot of big things that happened down the stretch. But, like, his game in Colorado, his Major League debut, was huge, and it was big-time national news. Like, that was a huge point of discussion on MLB Network and, like, the baseball podcasting world and all of that. He was a huge point of discussion because 21-year-olds don't generally come up and strike out, like, 13 batters in their major league debut against in Colorado. Like that was, it was a, it was a remarkable performance and it, I think sort of planted a flag for him for the future. And I think that we should, he gets lost in the shuffle a lot. A lot of talk this off season about next year's rotation has focused on Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff joining the rotation. And we shouldn't forget about Freddie Peralta. Peralta is very much a potential um, very good above average pitcher for the Brewers down the road as well. So, yeah, it, it's good to see that we can actually have a discussion about it, you know? Yeah. And this is, it, it's weird because the whole Brewers thing, you always think, okay, if the Brewers are going to be good, it's going to come from their farm system, right? That it has to bubble up that way because we're a small market and you, it has to be that way. Yet this team didn't have that many big rookie performers the way you would think that a team in their position, especially at this time, where they're they're good, much quicker than people expected. You would expect that there would be some big time rookie performances in there, and really, it was Burns and Peralta were the the guys. Well, but also the reason for that is some of the guys that would they would have hoped to be big time rookie performers were used to get Christian Yelich. Oh or yeah, other, you know other talent. They were able to send Lewis Brinson to Miami, you know, and I think he would have been a guy that everybody would have been looking to this season otherwise. And like we could be sitting here talking about Mauricio Dubon. Had things gone a different direction, we could be sitting here saying that, you know, it was Mauricio Dubon who came up and was a stabilizing force at shortstop for them. 
had he not you know blown out his knee right when he seemed to be on the cusp of getting the call to the big leagues. Like he seemed within well, like he was within a day or two of getting called up. Yeah. I, I think there's also a piece of you know, this rookie discussion is couched in the idea that the Brewers have amassed so much uh, controllable depth that there actually wasn't a lot of space uh, for rookies over the course of a lot of the year, right? I mean, like, you have Hader was, I don't know, to me at least felt like a rookie because he was coming in for the vast majority. Like, this was his first full season. Like, guys like uh, Santana, guys like, you know, Aguilar, guys like Arcia, they're all still young players to the point in which um, th- it would have to take a lot to, I think, overtake them to become an everyday player. And Arcia, you know, did his best at one point to allow somebody else to potentially plant a flag for the job, but he was able to to take it. Okay, moving on. Uh, Ryan, do you want to take the uh, Cy Young for 2018 for your Milwaukee Brewers? I'm going to go, yeah, sure. A little bit off the board here. I'm going to take Jeremy Jeffress. Uh, what he did this season was absolutely remarkable. He was truly a three-plus pitch pitcher in a relief role. He was used all over the place between early in the season being used as a fireman to get out of jams and doing a remarkably good job of that uh, in the you know sixth, seventh-ish innings. And then as the season went on, moving back into the, the ninth inning, and he really just did a fantastic job all the way through. And I would hate to see what happened in the postseason, which I feel was, you know, mostly a product of bad fortune. To tarnish that remarkable run this season, what he did, and because we didn't have a truly exceptional starter who is going for more innings at a truly exceptional level, like Shasin had a great year, but. You're talking about a guy who had a three and a half ERA. So with Jeremy Jeffers, you're looking at a guy who had an ERA of 1.29 and, you know, really did have a better run prevention season than Josh Hader. So Hader was the better pitcher peripheral wise, but not the better pitcher production wise. So I'll give the nod to Jeffers. Okay, JP, who, who would you pick this season? I think it, it, hopefully you'll come through and, and give Josh Hader a shout because I'm actually going to go with Yuli Shasin. Uh, I think that Shasin was, again, a, a somewhat you know similar to the Miley discussion about being the guy that they could rely on over the course of the entire season. But um, one of the most interesting things about Shasin is he actually, he is the, the individual who had the most uh, innings pitched for the Brewers since the 2014 season. He had 192.2 innings. His 35 starts is actually the most that they've had since since 2010, and I didn't go back and look any further than that. So he was somebody that not only just took the ball constantly, but was actually somebody that they could rely on to, I think, regularly give quality starts. And and it's interesting because uh, Shasin was... I mean, he was bad for his, his first few starts. Um, I mean, there, there was a point that we, I mean, I know that we privately talked about the fact that we actually didn't really enjoy watching him pitch a lot. Um, he was somebody that was largely living just off of his fastball. His slider wasn't really good early in the year. He wasn't really throwing a changeup at all. 
and he got better and better as it went along. His slider was able to refine, uh, you know, rediscover how good it was last year that that made him so successful and the reason the Brewers signed him more generally. But then he was able to vary his arm slots. He was able to start commanding his fastball better, and he became somebody that actually we enjoyed watching pitch and somebody that was successful. Um, so for me, Shasin not only gets the nod just because of the quantity he pitched, uh, the importance of the role that he was able to fill for the Brewers, but his overall growth throughout the year to the point that he was somebody that you could rely on to potentially be in the rotation and lock it down next year. Um, yeah. And I think he also got more comfortable throwing up in the zone, which is kind of what they wanted him to do. And he got more comfortable with that after that, some early hesitation on that. Yeah. Um, and actually, I thought I was going to be the one that would would probably shout out Shasin, uh, assuming that JP was going to take Hater. But I, I mean, Hater really is, I think, the unquestioned Cy Young of the staff this season. The number of innings he pitched, uh, the usage that he had, um, I, I think he just added so much more to this club than anybody else in the pitching staff. So, um, I mean, he pitched five more innings than Jeffress. Yeah, but I think the way he was able to pitch multiple innings in a way that Hader was the only one that pitched the quantity of multiple innings. Like, because if you look at the number of appearances Hader had in the innings he pitched, he was out there for longer stints than anybody, even if they were using Jeffress for one plus or Knable for one plus or whoever went out there. You know, Hader would throw two innings, Hader would throw two plus innings. And um, I think that just became a weapon where they were able to lock down a lot of games when they were able to, you know, bring Josh Hader in. So um, it, it it was really close between him and Shasin if you look at, like, war on fan graphs or something like that. So yeah. I think there, there there's definitely a shout for both those guys. Um, and, I mean, while I respect what Jeffress did, I don't think he was in the class of what, what Hader did or just the quantity that, that Shasin gave. I mean, you're looking I mean, at, for baseball reference war, Jeffress was at... He was fourth on the team in, in baseball reference war. Hader was sixth. So the order was Yelich, Kane, Shaw, Jeffress, Aguilar, Hader, and then Shasin was next. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, yeah. that, but that's going to completely depend on obviously baseball reference is going to be vastly different than Fangraphs because Fangraphs uses FIP while baseball reference actually uses run prevention. So yeah, right. I mean, Jeffress is going to be much, much higher on baseball reference, which, but I think the one thing that Hader brought to the table as well, which, you know, I, I how much you want to be able to put stock in it because it's more of a psychological thing. When Josh Hader came into the game, I mean, both, I think as a fan, but also the opposing team felt like the game was over. Right. Like when he sh when he stepped onto the mound in the eighth inning and he had two innings in him and over the course of the middle of the season, especially in that Met series, like that was the moment, I think, that'll and maybe because I follow a lot of Mets fans for for national writers, um, you know, a lot of people at baseball perspectives and whatnot were, were Mets fans and they were all just looking at it like, yeah, game's done. And when Jeffress was in, maybe people should have felt that way. Like maybe people actually should have felt the fact that Jeffress was was dominant, but Jeffress had or Hater had the feeling that you needed to score because you did not want to see him on the mound. 
Right. And he was a guy that you could get to, but it was a very sort of specific situations. Like you could get to Hater if the velocity wasn't great and if his location was bad and like he wasn't trusting his slider. You could then hit home runs off him. We saw you know, that game with the Marlins where they hit a couple bombs off of him in Marlins Park of all places. We saw it a few times where he could become hitable and you could get home runs. But those are really the exceptions. If it wasn't one of those specific games, he was almost just unhittable and the other team had to just take their lumps and 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 go i mean also he had a few bumps but he started strong and he finished strong in the season so i mean i think if you look at just the work he did you know every month from well i guess end of march but april through you know it ended up being october but if you just want to take it during the regular season september um you know there are very few moments where you really felt like Josh Hader was losing it or was like not usable that really didn't happen no it was like a game by game thing where you just be like oh right he just somehow got you know bombed twice by the Marlins yeah so I I think the best part I think the best part of that Marlins game though was the Marlins hitters were even surprised yeah oh they were shocked Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the talk was this is a team that well they had like a 21 hit game like the week prior and of like the 21 hits they had, 20 were singles because the team had like no power, yet they were able to to hit two home runs off of Josh Hader in a game. Right, yeah. and they because were not cheapies. Like, no, because baseball. Tanked. Yeah. yeah. I just want to be able to provide a one last shout out for, for Shasin because I was thinking about how much we all talked about how good J- uh, Jimmy Nelson was last year, and he was, absolutely, don't get me wrong. Um, Jimmy Nelson had a 3-4-9 ERA, uh, Shasin had a 3-5 ERA and actually took the ball in six more starts, and part of that was because Nelson got injured. But um, if it, a part of it is because he doesn't have the same velocity as a lot of other guys. Like if he had, if he was throwing mid 90s, everybody would just be absolutely in love with Shasin. I mean, he um, does get up into the mid 90s. I think he sits more 92, 93, but he touches 95, 96 at times. Yeah, he doesn't throw with elite velocity. Like, no, it's not. Not he in doesn't this sit in elite. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Chassin, well, I think part of what Nelson did last year, though, is Nelson was just kind of getting by. He was all right. He was all right. And then he seemed to just take a step forward and became a dominant starter for a stretch. Well, and then the peripherals were just otherworldly. Like He really he became a big strikeout guy with not a lot of walks. And it really that's that's, you know, what moved him. Because the ERA was not the, the story last year with Nelson. Remember, there was a big difference between like his baseball reference war and his fangraphs war because, yeah, the peripherals indicated he should have been a considerably better pitcher. He still got somewhat unlucky, which has been Jimmy Nelson's lot in life, really, even right down to the injury. Sure, yeah. But, I mean, like I said, Nelson also had like a couple extremes with that season. Rashasin was, uh, aside from some really rough starts in April, was just kind of remarkably consistent for the rest of the season you know Mm -hmm. you just kind of knew what you're getting out of them from start to start so um okay and then i don't know if if this is going to be the easiest uh category to hand out this year i mean kind of i know there are some people online stumping for other decisions but uh jp you want to go first who is your mvp for the brewers this year uh it was the starting right fielder, sometimes left fielder, and occasionally the starting center fielder of the Milwaukee Brewers, Christian Yelich. Brian, I you know what I can make the case for Kane. Oh, I was going to say, are we, to be, I think it's all right. Hold on, hold on, hold on. 
I just want to know, are you saying that you're making this case because you just want to like discuss somebody differently or are you making the argument and like saying this is your opinion that Kane was better? I would. I just want to. I would. I would take Yelich because I trust offensive stats more than I trust defensive stats. Okay. I just want. I just want to know. Like Kane's case rests so heavily on the defense, and I think in a world we could look at it like if we could have the kind of certainty about the defense, he may have even been better in terms of defense than what we're seeing in some of these metrics and in some of the ways that he he works out there. He is such a good defender. Just such an amazing defender. And I do think in something like this, you can make a case that the game by game, war per game, is more important than like the overall war for a situation like this. Because Kane missed a little bit more time than Yelich. Both did miss some time, but Kane was on the field a little bit less. And I think produced a bit more on a game per game basis than what Yelich did. And that, considering the Brewers have such great options to back everybody up, missing a little bit of time isn't a terrible indictment of a player, as long as, you know, they're still out there uh, most of the time, which both were. But I think you can, you can make the case that in a world where we were more certain of just how great Kane's defense was and how important that is for to have a player who gets on base at the top of the lineup and can run the bases the way he does and then play that incredible defense, that that whole package is a little bit harder to find than what you got from Christian Yelich. Though, though I will say I will say that Christian Yelich is not a poor defender. The only reason why his defensive metrics are so much less and so much lower is the fact that the positional adjustment is huge. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we're all, we are all in agreement that Yelich is the MVP. And then you can kind of talk about Kane after that yeah absolutely and i mean i was just asking because i want to know whether or not i should be sharpening my knives or whether or not we were just having like a hypothetical (laughs) conversation um and because i think that yeah i think if if we were going to put a huge and this was the entire discussion about the javi baez versus you know christian yelich thing is if it that argument relied so much on defensive value that if you were going to put that much defensive value on on the MVP table then you were actually going to have to talk about Lorenzo Kane and probably not Javi Baez well I know that they were also trying to use Baez's power output you know when you talked about OPS and stuff like that as putting him on you know more of a level playing field with Yelich and then Yelich's like September happened and Which, then Yelich was like, he goes, oh, yeah, that's cute. Hold on. Let me take care of that. Yeah, he, he dwarfed Baez's power along with just being able to get on base in a way that Baez couldn't even dream of. So, I mean, if if Baez had one of his peak seasons, he's still a, what, 325 on base guy? I mean, it's hard to say that's really an elite offensive player going forward. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no question that Yelich was the best offensive player in the National League. Which generally is what MVP ends up being anyways. Right. It, if you start bringing in defense, like JP's saying, once you start bringing in defense, well, then you also have to bring in. Yeah, the field know. expands. For, but then, for right. If we start bringing in defense, we're just like, well, it feels like this person was right. Like there's there's the offensive value. And then you're like, well, if defense matters as much as, you know, we think it does or if, you know, it does ma- like we all just then get into this moment in which we're just like, well, maybe which is fine. Actually, I don't have a I don't have a huge problem with that because I think that war is already bringing a false sense of certainty anyway that like 
I actually don't have much of an issue if people want to bring subjective measures in for defensive value. But we also then just have to acknowledge that we're basically just guessing. Sure. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things, if you look at the National League war leaderboard, you know who's second in the National League in war this year? And has been Paul- like a, a consistent like top two or three. I'm looking at fan graphs, by the way. Paul Goachman. No, no. And he's been, this guy's been consistently in the top five for the last while now. Uh, Anthony Rendon was second. Oh, yeah, he's, the, he's oh, always up there. That's a, that's a purely defensive argument, too, I'm pretty sure. No, he has mm-hmm. a 140 uh, WRC+. plus. He was second in the league in WRC. Oh, nope, sorry. Goldschmidt was 145. He was third in the league in WRC+. Plus. He hit Anthony Rendon at 308, 374, 535 this year. Yeah, Rendon is criminally underrated. He is criminally underrated. He really, because he misses time with injuries and people like ding him for that. And I think because the hair, you know, that's mm. just. No, I think, I think it's because he has to share the field with Bryce Harper, or he had been. So he was always their, you know, first round draft pick that wasn't Bryce Harper. Right. He was, yes, he has always been the not Bryce Harper. And now you know what he gets to be? The not Juan Soto. Wow. Sure. And and uh, I guess Victor Oblis, too. Yeah. And Trey Turner. How the hell did that team not win, like, 95 games? I, I do not understand that team. It because makes me just crazy. It's probably the pitching coach. Because they're... <laughs> <laughs> It's good, Steve. You're like it's very that, good. That's a callback. It's a call. Is that what they call that in the business? <laughs> that's what they call it in the business. <laughs> okay. Uh, any other awards we want to hand out? I put those down. I, I forget if there's something else. Do we have like a comeback player or anything we wanted to award this year? I don't know. I'll take uh, Craig Council's uh, best manager on the Brewers. Yeah, I think he's the manager of the year, clearly. Craig Council is going to be the manager of the year in the National League. I'm surprised you didn't want to talk about like the bench coach being the manager of the year for the Brewers <laughs> or something. Pat Pat Murphy did some heavy lifting. I tell you what, <laughs> I think he had a I think he got an interview for a managerial position too. Yeah, I don't know. You're the one who follows all that. So um, okay, uh, we will move on. We'll probably do another questioner here and then wrap this thing up. So because we have a couple. Asking about Josh Donaldson. We have one from Eric Cumming on Patreon, and we also have one from Jonathan Judge. We have a third one, too. There's three questions about Josh Donaldson. Is there really? Okay. Oh, yeah. So, anyways. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. There's the other one. Anyways. Okay. uh, Jonathan Judge asked uh, for the podcast, since the Brewers really need infield on base percentage, shouldn't signing Josh Donaldson be a top priority, even at 15 or 20 million a year? It seems like money well spent with Shaw being able to play second and probably still some opportunities for Hira to ease in over the next few years due to injury. Is is Donaldson a guy they need to seriously consider this offseason, JP? I mean, it. it I hate just having the answer. It depends. Um, well, okay. Here's the thing. Is it worth spending money on Josh Donaldson when they just had Mike Moustakis and they might be able to sign him for cheaper? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's certainly a valuable question to be able to bring forward. Um, my question really then centers on, do you think that Shaw is basically a platoon guy? If he's a platoon guy, then maybe... Uh, I mean, Josh Donaldson's going to have a lot of injury questions. Um, I also don't necessarily know if Josh Donaldson is an everyday player, um, at this point because of injury concerns. And so are you looking at 
potentially trying to create some kind of soft platoon where he faces, you know, most righties and, and the lefties. Um, if he is going to face most righties, then what do you do with Travis Shaw? I take the point here. The question is, you know, he could spend some time at second base, but I still think that, uh, that, that Keston here is probably the guy that's going to be playing second base by the end of May. And then the question is then, do you make Jesus Aguilar basically a, uh, a platoon guy in which Travis Shaw is playing first base? And then obviously you then have questions about what, what happens to Eric Thames. Uh, so I think it's a really interesting question. I think if they're going to be able to actually go in and if they're going to spend big money on a player, I'd like to, for the infield, I'd like to see him spend money on, on a player that could play more than one base, right? More than one position. Um, I think that that would be the, the scenario in which you would try to see like a Marwin Gonzalez, somebody like that, that could play multiple positions. I know that he doesn't have the ability to be able to hit for as much power, but he is the kind of high on base percentage guy that can play multiple different positions. If they are going to spend a lot of money, he'd probably be somebody that makes a little bit more sense to me. Um, but I, I take the point because Josh Donaldson, if he's healthy, that's a huge bat that you can just completely transform the lineup. I take the point, um, but I'm just not 100 percent sure it fits. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I do think, first off, Donaldson can play first base as well. We know that Donaldson can go over and play first base. So there's and there's some question about what Jesus Aguilar is going to be long term and having more insurance there beyond Eric Thames, who they also have his insurance, could be valuable in that case. I guess the best argument for Donaldson is probably that the Brewers have so much depth and so much flexibility, even with the guys they're losing right now, you know, losing Moustakas. They have so much depth and so much flexibility as it is that the bar to break in for playing time for this lineup has gotten higher. It, it's harder to get in and break in now. So if you're looking for a way to improve the team and to, to Jonathan Judge's point of improving the on-base percentage from the infield, if that's what you're looking to do, Donaldson is a good candidate that way because at his best, he is potentially a cornerstone, no doubt, bat. And because they do have the depth, they can cover for him potentially being hurt. So if it's going to work with Donaldson, if he was to come to the Brewers, he would need to be a guy that they potentially gave a big one-year deal to. That's what would make sense for Donaldson. I think he gets more than that on the open market. I think he does. So he probably plays his way out of what would make sense for the Brewers. Well, and that's one of the, uh, another, the other question we had about Donaldson. Um, Allspurge on Twitter asks, uh, what kind of contract do uh, we think Josh Donaldson will get this winter? And uh, could it possibly be in the one-year range? What do you think, JP? Well, I think, so just to go back for a quick second, I think Josh Donaldson, first of all, I, I don't think we know that he can play first base he has not played first base for more than one game since uh 2010 uh and he only has never played more than four games in a single season at first base um so i'm i'm not sure that we know that um so but the big thing with with donaldson for me then is again what you're you're talking about with the contract i he's not going to have any um free agent compensation tied to him. So that's going to be able to help him potentially get a multi-year deal. I think that somebody will probably give him uh, probably a, a two-year 
$35 million deal. Yeah, I mean, you're talking close to 20 a year, but for multiple years, that's that would be tough for the Brewers to swing uh, in these last couple of years with Ryan Braun. You know, if Ryan Braun wasn't on the team anymore, you could probably swing that a little bit easier, but that would be difficult. I'm wondering, because I've seen a lot of people tying him to the Cardinals, and the Cardinals fans are all over this. They want him to be a Cardinal. This is the the first thing when I searched Josh Donaldson a couple minutes ago. First story I saw was something from one of the TV stations in St. Louis saying, yeah, he should be a Cardinal. And I've seen people projecting as much as like four and 60. I think that's nuts. I, I hope he gets it because he is one of those guys who's really been screwed by the baseball system because he came up so late. And now he's what, 32, 33 years old. Yeah, he's 32. He'll be 33 next year. And he's just hitting free agency now after he's, his body has somewhat broken down. He, he put up such value for the A's and then for the Blue Jays that he really got screwed by baseball's economic system. And he is as good a case as you can make for guys being able to – having some sort of system in place where you get to go to free agency after a certain number of years after you signed your first pro contract as opposed to – uh, major league service time because he really I hope he gets the money that he he has been vastly underpaid so far so you just but don't I don't think, think I don't think it's it the won't brewers. be the brewers to I, do it's going to be hard for the brewers to do that it's just it's just yeah it's difficult yeah I mean it would be a good bat to get in there but yeah it's it's hard to justify plus it just seems like they have options you know, and I think they'd rather just maintain options and the ability to move guys around as they see necessary, as opposed to locking them into, well, NJP as you were saying, positional flexibility is such a big deal, and Donaldson right. would not give them that. Right. Well, and then if if we are even talking about hypothetically seeing if Josh Donaldson could play first base, then that's basically saying we don't need Jesus Aguilar anymore because you wouldn't really need an option. A right-handed bat at first base, then, to, because you'd be trying to make extra room there. Uh, I don't necessarily. I think that the most sensible place that the Brewers actually go and make a huge upgrade, and I don't know where it comes from. Is catcher. oh, this this was another question. I think that's. I think it's pretty clear that it it's it's catcher. I think it's going to be catcher, and I, I I do not think that they have the the um the pieces to make any kind of deal for JT Rio Mudo makes sense. So I'm going to just put that out there right away. I do not unless they're going to trade somebody really high up in the system. Um if they're willing to give, give up Corbin Burns then maybe, but I don't see that being something that they're going to pursue any kind of any anywhere. If they gave um, up Keston Hira, they could do it. Sure, but I do not think that they're also willing to even entertain that idea. I um, wouldn't well, I know you wouldn't. Well, I'm glad uh, you I'm glad you suggested it then if you wouldn't consider it. I'm just saying uh, it's possible. That, that's useful. So I think that we're in a situation where it's probably what I don't think Yasmani Grandal is gonna make too much sense now that he's gonna have the the free agent um compensation tied to him and he might even take it to stay with the Dodgers. So it's pretty much Wilson Ramos. Uh there are a bunch of other people that also want to catch her. So He's not going to come freely or cheaply. He's got an injury issues. I don't know where where that is going to come from. I think if they do make any kind of significant upgrade in terms of bats, it's going to probably be something that we're not expecting and not necessarily on the free agent market. But 
I also think that if they're going to spend money, it's probably going to be in the bullpen. Yep. I think bullpen and, uh, and catcher are yeah. the spots that need the most upgrading. And I'm all, I'm all for a grand all. And I always think that the middle infield offense is always kind of the Hira in waiting question. Right, it is. Hira is definitely the long-term solution there. Well, Which, next, year, next year you'll also see, hopefully, assuming that everything comes back okay, is Mauricio Dubon's also going to be somebody that can bolster the bench as well to give them more options up the middle. And that might be the end of the Hernan Perez experience, which I know there's <laughs> there's a lot of people who are waiting for that to end, and it's kind of unfair. I mean, that it, he is the most like but that's the ragged on player. But that's the life of that position. You're not good enough to be a starter, really. So you're just kind of subbing in for wherever they need you at the moment, and extended playing time is always going to expose flaws. Right. So that's kind of how that goes for him but you know what he's making a decent living at the moment doing it so we can't feel too bad for him um anyways we're gonna have a lot more to talk about i think as far as who are they going to sign in the offseason hopefully it happens a little sooner than it did last offseason where we can talk about some moves before the end of the year right yeah we'll see what happens with this market this year i think we might spend a lot of time talking about other things going on in baseball in terms of moves because it's going to be a a fascinating offseason because Mm -hmm. you've got big time free agents the likes we haven't seen in a long time will will harper and machado you know guys that are going to command those price tags do you think that's going to make it a slow market again jp just because nobody's going to want to be the first one to dive into like such a high high dollar contract or are they big enough names that it's just going to break sooner than than normal i think it'll probably break sooner than normal for two different reasons number one uh scott boris already said that bryce harper has a deal that he's accepted um that they that basically he's 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 already said that uh he's already made his decision where he's going to go really Um, i hadn't heard that it was uh ken rosenthal's said it uh three four days ago something close to that so he already Um, has a deal in place that he wants to take oh i heard Uh, that i don't know somebody else wrote about how that was boris blowing smoke yeah well then uh the way to try to drive up his market is not necessarily to say that he's already made up his mind (laughs) that doesn't seem to me to be something that uh would maybe somebody might somebody to say oh shit yeah, I better get in and make a big deal now. I mean, we've sworn on this podcast. Yeah, before. I was going to say, if you're going to oh, do it, just own oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. We better get on this and do it right now. And trying, it's a bluff that you can only maybe pull once. Because if if we're sitting here in a month. Well, if you're going to pull it, you pull it with Bryce with Harper. With Bryce Harper. But if you're sitting there two months from now and, uh, and he's still not signed, well, clearly that was a bunch of Scott Boris bullshit. And then, like, Whatever, but I mean, that's be a pretty big gambit if he's going to play that card. Well, sure. Was it caveated? I got to go read this now. This was October 28th. Um, Scott Boris said there is already a done deal in place for Bryce Harper. A done deal. It's the actual piece I'm reading says Scott Boris says there's already a done deal in place. Wow. Like somebody. When does free free agency officially open? Uh, it should already. Yeah, it's like five days I, after the end of the season. Yeah, I don't. I don't actually know. Um, 
but of course there there is i mean he could just be lying i mean that is a possibility that he is just completely lying and, and making it up but um so the other the other reason that i think that things will probably move a little bit more quickly up at the top end of the market is uh the deals are going to be so expensive that there is going to be a very limited market for who is actually going to be able to to spend that money and if you are a team that's trying to make a uh, a decision or trying to plan out the rest of your off season and you're going to be giving 250 million to to Manny Machado where you're trying to see if that's something that you are going to do you're going to want that done qu as quickly as possible because you're not going to want to say I can't make any other deals because I might have 250 million I need to drop um you're going to want to try to push those as quickly as possible so I don't think that those are going to those are going to linger on as much okay so if it does linger maybe the Brewers can jump in and surprise everybody right right for I, Bryce Harper or I think, or Yuli Shasin part two? I yes. was going to say, I think you're having some decimal issues. It's 250 million, not yeah. 20.0 million. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. Well, we will talk about those deals later this winter, um, but that's going to do it for this week's show. You can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash MKE tailgate. Patrons at the ball glove level will receive the monthly minor league extra podcast. As always, follow us on Twitter at MKE tailgate, and you can submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's tailgate baseball podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and in the Google Play Store, and we're on Spotify, so don't forget that as well. Um, leave reviews and help people find the podcast, especially this winter when more people are going to start, you know, forgetting about the podcast and then looking for a new podcast to listen to. Make sure they all know we're still on. Um, and get that word out, and thanks for listening. Look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate. Okay.